Trade Bites, the podcast about trade policy. Hello and welcome once again to Trade Bites, the podcast series by the UK Trade Policy Observatory at the University of Sussex and hosted by me, Chris Horseman, Deputy Editor of the Trade Policy News Service, Borderlex. Trade Bites is the podcast series that takes an analytical but always accessible look into the darker corners of that Byzantine old construct that is UK trade policy. And today we're looking at how the UK is getting on with probably its most important trade relationship of them all, the one with our biggest trading partner, the European Union. It's just about 18 months now since the UK finally left the EU single market and went full steam ahead on the full fat version of Brexit favoured by Prime Minister Boris Johnson and his team. But questions are being asked about just how Britain is doing on its post-Brexit journey. Economic data suggests that the UK's economy is growing less rapidly than most other G20 countries. And diplomatic relations between the EU and the UK are frosty, to say the least, following the continuing disagreements over implementation of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But what a lot of people don't realise is that the EU-UK relationship is not set in stone. There is a review clause for the main EU-UK trade agreement, which means that within a couple of years, the arguments about what sort of relationship we want to have with the EU will be right back on the table. So how well prepared are we as a country to reopen those debates about alignment versus divergence and sovereignty versus market access? Does the upcoming review create the opportunity for something better, or does it entail the threat of something worse? Well, to give us their considered opinions on all of this, we have assembled a group of eminent analysts with deep knowledge and experience in this area. I'm joined by Dr. Peter Holmes, Fellow of the UK Trade Policy Observatory here at the University of Sussex. We are also delighted to welcome Sir Michael Lee, former Commission official and academic director of the European Public Policy Master's course at Johns Hopkins University. And I'm joined too by Georgina Wright, senior fellow and director of the European programme at the Institut Montaigne in Paris. And a big welcome also to Sir Jonathan Fall, also a former Commission official and chair of European Public Affairs at the Brunswick Group. Many thanks to all of you for being with us today. Peter Holmes, can you set the background to this? What is the regulatory basis on which the relationship between the EU and the UK currently stands? So we've got the withdrawal agreement, we've got the trade and cooperation agreement. What's the difference between the two? Well, the withdrawal agreement set the terms for our departure from the EU, and the trade and cooperation agreement was negotiated at the sort of last minute of the transition agreement to determine what the relationship should be afterwards. But I think I would just throw in another document, which was the political declaration that when we signed the withdrawal agreement, we also signed with the EU something called a political declaration. And the basis of the current government's electoral appeal in 2019 was that they had a deal that was agreed, oven ready. And the promise made in the general election was that things would be as provisionally sketched out. The political declaration actually was not a binding commitment, 
my understanding was that this was the kind of agenda which both parties agreed for the future relationship. And this envisaged a much closer relationship in terms of regulatory cooperation and it used the term level playing field and so on. Once the government had won the general election on the basis of this outline agreement with the EU, it said that because it had such a large majority, it could do what it liked. And the trade and cooperation agreement, which was finally signed, was a very different animal from what had been promised in the political declaration. The trade and cooperation agreement involves zero tariffs with the condition that uh, this is only subject to what are called rules of origin, zero tariffs for goods made in Britain, including agricultural products, which is quite unusual for an EU trade deal, but almost no mutual recognition of what's called conformity assessment and other rules and regulations. So it's a very thin agreement, which is somewhat different from what we were told was going to be in it. There's a lot to unpack there, and I'm sure we will move on to that in due course. Michael Lee, how would you describe the current relationship between the UK and the EU? Which bits of the relationship are working well and which bits perhaps less so? Current relations are strained, to put it mildly. The Commission began legal proceedings against the United Kingdom for violating the terms of the withdrawal agreement that Peter has just referred to. Two aspects of this related to the so-called Northern Ireland Protocol, where the British government had promised to carry out certain border controls on goods entering Northern Ireland and to provide essential trade statistics to the EU, which it has failed to do. So one could just imagine when it comes to addressing other issues, if we're in a situation in which legal proceedings are being taken against the UK, This is not very propitious to cooperation in other areas. Peter did well to recall the political declaration, which, although it is thin, as he said, nonetheless does in principle lay the foundation for cooperation in certain other areas. There were a few parallel agreements reached. There was one on nuclear safety, And there was one on data security for confidential data. There had also been envisaged close cooperation on science, research and innovation through the EU's Horizon Europe programme, 95 billion state-of-the-art programme, to which the UK has been a major contributor and participant in previous years. These parallel agreements for cooperation in other fields are still there in principle, limited though they are. But in the current atmosphere, implementation is a real problem. And for the time being, Horizon Europe, for example, has been put on the back burner. Jonathan Full, from your perspective, how would you evaluate the current state of the EU-UK relationship? Well, it could be better. Obviously, the Northern Ireland Protocol is a problem. And the overall relationship is suffering as a consequence. There are various areas where things are ready to go. Agreements have more or less been reached on the ways in which cooperation could be improved and have all been frozen. So at the moment, the relationship is not a happy one. I think with the very important exception of the war in Ukraine, where there seems to be pretty good cooperation between 
the British authorities and those of the rest of Europe on foreign and security policy. But there are tensions and strains there as well, which will come to the fore, I expect, when the issues about what to do after the war come to the surface. Georgina writes, as we've just been hearing, what we've ended up with is a fairly basic agreement. And there was the discussion during the negotiations on the trade and cooperation agreement during 2020. We often heard that the UK government wanted a kind of Canada plus agreement. In other words, an agreement that was analogous to the one between the EU and Canada, i.e. a fairly basic free trade agreement. That apparently is what we've got. What does that mean in your view for the EU-UK relationship? And what has it meant for UK-EU trade since January 2021 when it came into effect? That's a really good question. And I think, you know, to answer it, you need to sort of look at the deal, but you also need to look at what's happening on the ground, so to speak. And I think Sir Michael's absolutely right, where implementation, so how, you know, you have this deal that landed on Christmas Eve, businesses has very little time to adapt. And then you had COVID that happened on top of that. So actually, there have been many problems with implementation, but it's very difficult to know whether they're due to Brexit or the post-Brexit reality, or whether they're due to COVID. So I think we're going to have to wait, you know, another couple of years to really see materially what the impact of Brexit has been on the UK-EU relationship. But looking at the deal more broadly, it is very much a compromise where both sides gave in. And I think both the EU and the UK got a lot of their defensive asks, but very few of their offensive asks. So, for example, I know the UK wanted more on financial services, wanted to make sure it was easy for them to continue accessing the internal market in the EU said nope, if you want a basic free trade agreement, then you can't have all these wonderful things on the side. So there's a a dialogue that's going on. But as Sir Michael said, as long as the UK is threatening to basically unilaterally rewrite aspects of the withdrawal agreement, then it's going to be very difficult to see how the basic trade agreement can be improved in parts. And also the EU wanted more than a trade deal. So it wanted, for example, close cooperation on foreign policy, which in the context of Ukraine, for example, is quite interesting. And the UK said, no, we're not going to do that. We want uh, simply this agreement to look mostly at trade and energy and, and other aspects, but very limited on foreign policy. So in a sense, I wasn't entirely surprised when I saw it land and I did spend most of my Christmas Eve reading through it. But as you said in the introduction, this could evolve, but it very much depends on political will on both sides. And at the moment, relations are so tense that for me, it's very difficult to see how it could be improved. What's your opinion, Jonathan? Well, what it's meant was that there is no tariff barrier between the UK and the EU. But tariff barriers are not, frankly, the most important in today's world. Non-tariff barriers, differences brought about by different regulations on either side are what get in the way of seamless trade. And the EU has spent half a century or more building a single market by getting rid of regulatory differences between its members so that you can make something or invent a service in one place and sell it or provide it in another. By placing ourselves outside the European single market and accepting an agreement or promoting an agreement which dealt only essentially with tariffs, we find ourselves with the challenge of managing divergence in regulatory standards, which is inevitably happening and going to happen even more.
the TCA does have this review clause, which, as I understand it, and enlighten me on, on this, it requires the provisions of the agreement to be revisited every five years. So when do we expect work to begin on, on a kind of possible review or renegotiation of the TCA? How many timelines been set down for that? My understanding is that the word coming out from Brussels is they are in principle willing to talk about a review, but it all depends on a change in the political circumstances in Britain. And as far as I can make out, the problem is that the timing of the five-year review is five years after the agreement came into effect. And the question is, when do you actually count that as starting? And in reality, we'd be talking about 25, 26, because the agreement was so formally, I think, implemented legally in summer of 2021. So a review process would officially start in 2026, but obviously you've got uh, the preparations for it. But the question is, is the British side prepared to start opening negotiations in a way which would not simply be a list of demands? If we want an improved relationship, we're going to have to concede some of the regulatory alignments that we have refused to commit to, even in circumstances where we actually have no obvious intention to diverge. So, for example, in cars, British car industry would absolutely disappear if we didn't use the same regulatory regime as the EU. There are supply chains going across borders. Both sides at the moment base their regulations on the UN, it's called UNECE, system of standards, which are then incorporated into regulations. Now, we can't run a car industry without complying with those standards. And there's no commitment to doing so. So the kind of thing we need to be aware of is say, where is sovereignty something we can actually trade off for better market access and then commit to that for five years at a time? But we have to have a dialogue on that in this country. There has to be I mean, put it bluntly, this could only be the work of the next government. And uh, at the moment, there isn't much chance of an alternative regime in London. And uh, if there is, the discussion hasn't started yet. Yes, I agree with Peter that the review clause would be for a future government, both in terms of the timing that he explained anyway, and for political reasons. It's pretty obvious that this government is not going to wish to undertake a review with the idea of deepening relations, uh, strengthening relations, improving relations and so on, which doesn't seem to be the order of the day at all. And a review clause rather implies that the existing agreement would have been used to the full extent of its possibilities. And then we are considering what more could be done or what could be done differently in the future. I mean, one of the characteristics of the present situation, particularly over Northern Ireland, is that the provisions of the existing agreement have not really been used. They provide for a joint committee. The joint committee could very well address some of the concerns that the British government has about trade with Northern Ireland. The European Commission has put forward a whole series of proposals as to how to smooth trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland, which have not really been taken up by the British government. So I think before we come to the issue of reviewing the agreement as a whole, both sides would need to make 
full use of the existing provisions, which is hardly the situation today. Jonathan, what's your view on that? Well, we need a way to deal with divergence in regulatory standards. Doesn't mean outlaw it, obviously. Uh, No amendment to the TCA is going to bring the UK back into the single market in the foreseeable future. So a system needs to be created whereby both sides talk to each other in advance about regulatory changes and then make a decision on what they want to do, but at least in the knowledge that they know something about the impact it will have on the other side and how the other side might react to that impact in turn. At the moment, that is not being done. Now, because of the pandemic and because of the war, neither of which could have been predicted only a few years ago when all this was being negotiated, it's very hard to make judgments based on economic data and statistics because there are many reasons why things are happening the way they're happening now. But divergence, in a way, was, from the British point of view, the whole point of leaving the single market and Brexit itself. If the UK wants to regulate differently, then it has to consider the consequences of those changes for its trading relationships with its nearest neighbours. Plus, Northern Ireland has to be sorted out one way or another. And, of course, Georgina, the Northern Ireland Protocol itself has a time deadline attached to it in that that agreement has to go back to the Northern Ireland Assembly for approval, I believe, in 2024. So how do you see these two issues perhaps interacting with each other in terms of the way that these deadlines or review clauses bump up against each other? They're very much interlinked. And I think, you know, Michel Barnier, who was the EU's chief Brexit negotiator at the time, so he and his team negotiated the withdrawal agreement, which is the divorce deal, and then the post-marriage settlement part, which is the, the trade and cooperation agreement, was very clear throughout that there was a direct link between the withdrawal agreement and the trade agreement. And that, you know, if there were any attempts to undermine one, then there could be impacts on the other. And I think there is even a clause that would allow, say, the UK government completely undermines the Northern Ireland protocol, then the EU could respond by terminating bits of the trade agreement or putting an end to the trade agreement altogether. So there are links that exist between the two. But I think you're right in saying that in 2024, there is an important vote where the Northern Irish institutions get to vote on whether or not they believe that the aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol should continue to exist and whether the Northern Ireland should continue to be bound, particularly by the the trade arrangement in there. And at the moment, not everyone in Northern Ireland likes the Northern Ireland Protocol. So that's why the British government is saying, look, we don't think it's working. We don't think the EU is seriously engaged in, in some of our proposals. We've tried to negotiate it and we have no other choice but to pass this domestic legislation to rewrite aspects of the Northern Ireland Protocol because it's simply isn't working and because there is this consent vote in 2024 and if the you know if it's rejected if the Northern Ireland protocol is rejected then we'll have nothing at all but I think so Michael's right that when you talk to people in Brussels they say well wait a minute 
it, some of the UK's proposals are things that they already put forward when we were negotiating the Northern Ireland Protocol, and we'd already ruled those out. So were they negotiating in bad faith? Was it simply, let's get it out of the way, let's get the trade agreement out of the way, and then let's revisit the Northern Ireland Protocol? That's not how you negotiate an agreement. And then the second thing they put forward is, you know, we don't really feel like the government wants to improve the Northern Ireland Protocol. We feel the government wants to replace it altogether, because otherwise it would have engaged more with the proposals that we put forward in October. So in a sense, you have two, sometimes the feeling that ships sailing through the night where they're both talking at each other, but not to each other. And, you know, as Sir Michael said earlier on, that politics are so bad that it's very difficult to see how we can find a new form of compromise. But I think Brussels, there's willingness. And I suspect that in London, there is willingness as well, because at the end of the day, this is really important. It affects a region of the UK. And without this non-known protocol, we are back to square one and potentially, you know, no trade agreement and so no deal territory, which wouldn't be ideal. On one brief point that was raised by Georgina, I agree certainly with the broad lines of her analysis, but I think opinion polls in Northern Ireland show that for the majority of the population, the Northern Ireland Protocol is not a major issue, and for that matter, a majority of the Assembly as well. But there is an important group of the Democratic Unionist Party in particular that doesn't like the terms of the protocol whereby Northern Ireland received different treatment from the rest of the United Kingdom, something which the British government agreed to. And therefore, I think that is the political point of difficulty in Northern Ireland rather than the general views of the population. The Northern Ireland-Ireland border was identified from 2016 onwards as an important issue to be considered in the talks. Indeed, before the referendum, it won during the referendum campaign. Not enough, in my view. It was already identified as a major issue. The idea that the UK is an island is simply not true. We share a, uh, we share a bit of an island with another country. We have a land border. And that land border has been many things in its 100 years of existence. It has never been divided between two countries with different customs territories and different regulatory systems. We in Ireland joined the EU together. We didn't leave it together. The Irish haven't left and have no intention of leaving. So it didn't get the attention it deserved from the very beginning. And most of the problems which are occurring now were frankly pretty predictable. Some of them can be solved. Some of them can be solved, I think, relatively easily with goodwill on both sides to get rid of some of the friction, some of the worst friction in trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But when it comes to things like the role of the European Court of Justice, the governance system, uh, that's what was agreed in the protocol. And the European side shows no desire and sees no need to reopen that. It is true that it's odd for a foreign court, which is what the European Court of Justice has become for the United Kingdom, still to have jurisdiction over some aspects of life in part of the country. But that's what we agreed. That's what we agreed in the Northern Ireland Protocol. It was part of the deal whereby we left the European Union. It was endorsed by Parliament by a general election, in effect. It was part of getting Brexit done. And in the European Union, they wonder why that needs to be reconsidered so quickly. 
Now, of course, we've been speaking primarily about the UK side of the equation, but things don't go on forever on the EU side either. The European Parliament has elections due in mid-2024. The mandate of commission of President Ursula von der Leyen also expires in the same year. What implications do you think the expiry of these mandates might have to the negotiations with the EU, if any, Michael? I don't believe that they will affect fundamentally relations with the UK. This remains to be seen. We have to see how the EU evolves. Meanwhile, there are all sorts of new ideas on the table. People seem to be ready to contemplate treaty change, which has been anathema for years to deal with different policy areas. So the kind of EU that may exist in 2026 could look a little bit different from the EU that we know today. The areas of EU responsibilities might change. We want to see what happens in terms of enlargement, uh, the Western Balkans, the three countries in Eastern Europe and the Southern Caucasus who have applied for membership now, who are likely to be given candidate status. So the EU might be a rather different creature in 2026 from the one that we know today. And that, therefore, is going to influence the possible future relationship with the UK. Similarly, the UK may evolve in different ways. We will have had an election. There may be a government with different priorities that's in power at that stage. So I think, honestly, it would be rather premature at this stage to hazard a guess as to the political complexion of the Commission or of the European Parliament. Broadly speaking, on an issue such as this, I think we can expect continuity. And it's been one of the striking features of the way the EU has handled Brexit, that unity has been preserved throughout. It remains to be seen if that will remain the case. But based on past performance, I wouldn't expect these changes to really affect fundamentally the nature of the bilateral relationship. Peter, back here in the UK, Brexit remains a highly sensitive and divisive issue. Do you detect any real kind of public appetite to review the current situation, to change the substance of the UK's relationship with the EU? I think it is just so striking that there really isn't any kind of political debate about the future of our relations. It's as if people feel that we're fated to stick with the relationship that was negotiated by Johnson under the TCA. And they really don't want to talk about the review clause. Now, I, a uh, small plug here, have published a paper, which is uh, some people may have forced themselves to read, just saying that we need a debate. I think any British government that's going into negotiations in 2025, in order to negotiate effectively, should have put what it plans to do to the electorate in the general election, which is due at the end of 2024, being in 2025. But there's no sign of doing this. The Labour Party in particular seems to be scared of alarming the so-called red wall voters, even though the opinion polls seem to suggest that in every region of the country, people are dissatisfied with the outcome of the Brexit negotiations. But there was a big survey in the Financial Times. The general sort of picture seems to be that on the business side and in uh, sort of the analytical community, everybody seems to conclude that there has been significant damage from Brexit, but nobody seems willing to 
on the political side say, well, we've got to do something about it. So we are actually, we're stuck for the time being. This may not go on forever, but at the moment, there doesn't seem to be an open debate. Even the Lib Dems are keeping quiet about this. And as far as the Scottish Nationalists are concerned, it's simply part of their own independence agenda rather than something in its own right. So whether or not this will change, I just don't know. But for the moment, we have an economic debate, which is fairly lively, but not a political debate. Jonathan, how do you see this? The substance, no, I don't see in opinion poll evidence any overwhelming view that we should rejoin the European Union, reconsider everything that's been done. I think there is a sense that the decision was taken and we should all get on with it. And by the way, there's no sign over on the continent that there is enormous interest in revisiting the whole thing either. It's not a big subject in the politics of the 27 member states of the EU, apart from Ireland, 26, say, to be fair. In Ireland, it's obviously a very important issue. For the rest, it's largely disappeared from the front pages. It's just not a big deal anymore. It's done. It's different. The UK now has a different relationship. People still like the country, want to visit it. I don't think there's any enormous resentment, but it's not top of mind. I'm going to just wrap up with one final question, which I'd like to put to all three of you, if I may. Do you see a closer trading relationship evolving between the EU and the UK after 2026? And what kind of features do you think might characterize that relationship? Or do you think that this Canada plus model that we've been working with since the start of 2021 will persist a little bit longer? I'm interested to uh, to see what your crystal balls are telling you. Georgina, what's your view? In a sense, of course, it could be improved if there's a political willingness on both sides to do that. And if you've got good, friendly relations and that you sort of respect the deals that you've signed up to. And I think at the moment we're not there. There's no real political willingness to improve the deal and relations aren't great either. The thing I'd also add is... Brexit and post-Brexit reality, it's not really a priority for the EU right now. And, you know, Sir Michael was saying there are big discussions happening in Brussels about treaty review. There's also Ukraine, how you respond to the war, but also how you can think about post-war reconstruction. There's a lot happening inside. There's a lot of questions around enlargement, which, again, Sir Michael's written a lot about. And I know Peter's done a lot of thinking about trade deals, the EU's trade deals, and how you can improve our relations with like-minded member states and you know the UK is there but it's simply not a priority and I think that's also the other big question is in 2026 if there is real willingness to improve the deal how can we get the EU as a whole to take notice of this because at the moment everyone's focusing on other things and then when they do actually look at what's happening in the UK they're like oh my goodness you know confrontation combative tone and sort of then they kind of return and look at something else so I think there's going to be a real need to keep the those dialogues going to keep these discussions going because at the moment no one's really paying that much attention across the EU. It's different in Brussels and for the team that's responsible for overlooking and making sure that this works but for the rest everyone's looking at elsewhere. Michael it sounds as though we Brits overestimate the extent to which the rest of Europe is obsessing about our relationship with the European Union. Is that a view that you share? That's true absolutely true Chris. 
At the same time, you've invited us either to do a crystal ball operation or scenario building. And I think in terms of scenario building, the entire logic of the interests of the United Kingdom as a medium-sized power with a medium-sized economy having to deal increasingly with major actors such as China and the United States is that it concert its policy as closely as possible with its immediate neighbor, the European Union. And similarly, from the EU perspective, the United Kingdom possesses many qualities. I mentioned science, research, technology, where the UK is innovating in many fields and so on. So there are definite mutual interests in moving more towards the kind of relationship that the previous government had envisaged, which it referred to as a deep and special partnership. That is off the agenda for the time being, for all the reasons we've said. But in looking at a scenario as to how the world might appear towards the end of the 2020s, I think the logic points in that direction. And in terms of possible models, if there were an openness to it, we have the European economic area, the Norway model, the Iceland model, for example. But we also have some interesting new developments in the EU, whereby President Macron, former Italian Prime Minister Letta and others have talked about moving towards some kind of European political community, which would not only be political, but would provide for cooperation in a whole range of areas. And so the architecture of Europe might begin to look rather different toward the end of the 2020s. And if there are shifts in UK perceptions and a new UK government more inclined to move in that direction, I think there might be new possibilities at that time, which are difficult for us to envisage in detail today. Jonathan Full, what's your view? Well, sometime after 2026, I think there is a reasonable expectation that the trading relationship and the overall political relationship will improve. It's in the interests of both sides that it should. The United Kingdom is a European country facing pretty much the same problems and challenges as other European countries. The aftermath of the COVID pandemic, and I hope it is after, and the war in Ukraine have to be dealt with by Europe collectively. The EU is part of the collective structure of Europe with 27 members. The UK outside it. I think we'll have to find a way to deal with it in a grown-up and sensible way. We may by then have an American president in the White House who thinks that Russia is very much Europe's problem to deal with and that America should get on with uh, its concerns about China. So I can see pressures, economic, political, diplomatic, on European governments to find ways of devising solutions to their common problems together. That will require inventing new systems and mechanisms and structures. If the UK doesn't want to be in the EU, fine. Something else can be developed. The EU is slow, can be legalistic, but history has shown that it has found ways to deal with European countries which don't want to join it 
but need to be in a close relationship with it. Switzerland, Norway, there are all sorts of examples. So, yes, I am fundamentally optimistic. It may need another political cycle. It may need a new generation of politicians who haven't been involved in all the shenanigans of recent years, but it will come. Peter, a last word from you. I'd like to uh, try and follow on Michael's relatively optimistic scenario there. There are a number of low-hanging fruit which a British government willing to commit to its promises could go for. As Michael says, the research corporation is there. That's built in to the existing TCA. There's something we haven't talked about, which is the emissions trading system. And the, the EU is talking about creating a system of carbon border adjustments. Now, that's going to hit, at least administratively, even if not in terms of tariff rates, any country that doesn't sign up to aligning itself with the EU system. But we are going to have a system which is similar to the EU system, almost certainly. So it's a question of simply biting the bullet and say, okay, we agree to commit ourselves to that, there is the possibility of an SPS agreement, sanitary and phytosanitary food safety, which the EU seems to have mooted. There is a whole series of, we've agreed to align ourselves to the European standards agencies, SEN and Senelec, not for regulation, but for standards. So there are a whole series of areas in which a government that was pragmatic about where does it want to negotiate to retain sovereignty and where actually does this not bring us anything could start opening things up. So there are lots of possibilities, I think. And the possibility, I think, exists in 2025, not necessarily of jumping into a much closer relationship, but perhaps turning around the direction of travel so that by the time of the next relationship, we would be in a position to seriously consider the kind of structural changes which Mike was referring to. That's an optimistic story. I had a a brief conversation with a commission official who said, Peter, you always were an optimist. He didn't say I was an idiot, so I'm going to stick to that line. An optimist, but not an idiot. I would take that any day, quite honestly. Well, there we have to wrap up our podcast. It's a shame because there is so much more to unpack, but there we do have to leave it. Many thanks indeed to my guests, to Dr. Peter Holmes, to Sir Michael Lee, to Georgina Wright, and Sir Jonathan Fall. So thank you very much to all of you for tuning in and listening. Please do join us again soon for the next episode of Trade Bites. Please subscribe to our Trade Bites podcast series brought to you by the UK Trade Policy Observatory with funding from the Economic and Social Research Council.